there, and welcome to the COVID-19 and Food podcast series from the Institute for Global Food Security at Queen's University, Belfast. My name is Una Bradley, and I'm the Communications Officer for the Institute. During this series, I will be speaking to some of our top researchers about the effects of the latest coronavirus on food systems, food integrity, and our relationship with food. But we are recording this series remotely, so please forgive any technical hitches or blips in sound quality. My guest today is Dr. Neil Reid, a senior lecturer in conservation biology at the Institute. He has researched a wide range of topics across applied ecology, biodiversity and sustainability. From the impact of bushmeat hunting on large mammals in Central America, to the role of badgers in the spread of bovine TB. He's particularly interested in the link between research and regulation and prefers to focus on areas that are relevant to public policy. So you might be wondering, what has any of that got to do with COVID-19? Well, it turns out quite a lot. The growing global crisis in biodiversity has been widely blamed for creating the conditions in which a zoonos such as COVID-19 could jump from wild animals to humans. The argument runs like this, a rising world population swelling urban centres, the destruction of habitats, pollution, the wildlife trade and climate change are all intricately connected and have created the perfect storm in which zoonoses can thrive. We cannot solve one aspect, for example, how do we minimise the risk of future pandemics without addressing the whole all of which has huge implications for the food chain. If we change the way we manage our natural environment, including how we hunt, fish and farm, it will affect not only the environment, but animal health and welfare, and consequently human health. So Neil, lots to talk about, and thanks for making time for us today. No problem, good afternoon, Una. Good afternoon. Uh, Neil, what, what is your take as somebody who works in this area? What's your take on this argument that a loss of biodiversity has created the conditions for COVID and other coronaviruses such as SARS and MERS? Well, you're quite right when you say that to most people at first glance, these seem like very different subject areas with nothing to do with each other. But in fact, because of human pressure on natural ecosystems worldwide, whether it be through food production, uh, extraction of resources, uh, and so on, we have brought the natural world into increasing amounts of pressure, which um, causes it to buckle and stress, and therefore the processes involved in natural stability change. So I explain it to my students when I'm lecturing, if you, in my family at Christmas, we like to play the game Jenga, you know, that tower made of wooden blocks and you all take a block out from the bottom and, and balance it on the top and mm -hmm. you build the tower higher and higher. Well, species loss is one block, climate change is another block, food production is another block, and we keep changing the orientation of these blocks and building it higher and higher. And of course, the tower begins to wobble from side to side, it begins to jerk from side to side, it becomes much more unstable. And eventually, at some point, there comes a tipping point where it crashes down. And we're at this point in history where we can see this tower jerking from side to side. You know, we have this climate crisis, we're changing the composition of the atmosphere of the entire planet. 
uh, an unplanned experiment. Carbon dioxide is at a higher level than it's been for millions of years and certainly outside the realm of what human beings have experienced in our 250,000 year history. Um, we have caused huge biodiversity loss. So since 1970, 60% um, of the world's wildlife has disappeared. You know, we're not talking about a small percentage here. We're talking about the vast majority of life has vanished in most of our lifetimes. Uh, and that changes this, the, the services that it provides humanity. In the parlance of ecosystem services, um, you know, a, a natural capital, life is a kind of capital and it delivers these services. So, for example, plants and oceanic uh, plankton photosynthesize and um, produce the oxygen we breathe. Freshwater organisms like mussels filter our water. Uh, bacteria and fungi decompose our waste products and cycle our nutrients and liberate them for crops, for soil health. And uh, a third of the food in your fridge and cupboard is pollinated because uh, of an insect visiting a flower. Um, so these are services that if they vanish because the animals that produce them vanish, we have to replace those um, uh, processes with artificial technology that costs money as an, and is invariably less ideal. Um, and so the whole system is altering. And when you alter the temperatures, when you alter the composition of habitats, you alter uh, animal uh, patterns and, and distribution, you bring people into contact with animals and in processes that they wouldn't normally have contact with. So we know, for example, 40% of the Earth's surface is currently farmed for the production of food. Of the remaining 60%, about half is desert or, or frozen, so cannot be farmed or at least not very easily. Um, and the remaining 30% is forest. And we know that deforestation contributes 15% of global greenhouse gas emissions, which is actually more than all the vehicular transport put together, all the planes and the, the cars and the trains and the, the automobiles. So we, we really don't want to convert any more of that remaining forest into to farmland at all, if we can at all help it. Um, but nonetheless, that's what we're doing. We're encroaching further and further into these areas of wilderness. It's bringing us into contact um, with wild animals we wouldn't normally be in contact with. So to give you an example, in my study site, I, I work in the neotropics in, in the country of Honduras in a national park that should be very protected. And there we've been monitoring mammal populations over the last couple of decades. And since 2006, um, the, the large animals in the park have declined by 70%. Now, this is a really remote region and mountainous cloud forest. But what happens is people go right into this forest and they deforest little patches of it uh, in order usually to grow either cash crops or drugs um, for the North American drug market. And when they're in these remote areas growing these hidden crops, you know, they hunt in the forest. And when they, they kill a tapir or a peccary or a large rodent, they butcher it with their machete. And you can easily imagine on sanitary conditions during that butchery process, if there's a nick or a cut on someone's hand, that a disease or a pathogen could very easily leap from an animal into a human being. And that's what we think has happened in, in Southeast Asia and with uh, COVID-19. We know that it's wild relatives, uh, the, the, the coronaviruses within rhinolophus horseshoe bats. Uh, um, we think that it arrived to human beings via another animal, possibly pangolins, although there's some debate about that. Pangolins, interestingly, are the world's most illegally trafficked organism. 
there's about a quarter of a million individual pangolins are illegally trafficked around the world every year, Africa, Southeast Asia, because their scales, they're a scaly antidote, if you don't know what a pangolin is, and their scales, even though they're made out of the same material as our fingernails, they're ground up and they're used in various traditional medicines. And so um, you can imagine you know, cages of 20 or 30 of these animals stacked below a cage of bats, stacked below a cage of birds in a wildlife market somewhere in Southeast Asia. Uh, and we know that animals in the wild have lower coronavirus loads than they do when they reach the market because they're urinating and defecating on each other when they're stacked in these cages. And we know by the time they reach restaurants that they've got an even higher load of viruses because they've, they've um, um, infected one another. And again, in these kind of wildlife markets on sanitary conditions, you can easily imagine cutting someone's hand, a, a, a plucky virus makes the leap and, and just by chance has the mutations that allow it to jump from human to human. And because of our globalized travel, very easily someone boards a plane in Wuhan and flies to Northern Italy. And then some, a school child on a ski trip in Northern Italy flies home to Ireland and very quickly within two short steps, a, a virus that belongs in a bat in Southeast Asia has reached Ireland. So these kind of issues of deforestation, encroachment into wild habitats, uh, global climate change because of the emissions that deforestation causes and habitat destruction causes and our food security, how we get our food are all intricately connected and in, in ways that are really very difficult to predict. Yeah, yeah. How we have ended up in this particular situation. Mm, yes, you paint a fairly worrying picture, it would have to be said. And, and the figures around the loss of biodiversity are pretty alarming. Um, as, as you've pointed out, a recent article I read um, reported that over 500 species would likely become extinct over the next 20 years. Um, and the experts quoted in that article uh, called for this sort of exponential loss to be declared a global emergency along with climate change. Do, do you think that's really what's required here to sort of, um, you know, push it up the agenda a little bit? Absolutely. I, I think even five years ago, climate change itself wasn't really on our, our everyday radar. You stopped the per a person in the street, they, they couldn't have told you a great deal about climate change. But in the last couple of years, it's really ramped up in terms of its visibility on the news and, and principally because there is a very easy strap line to remember now. I think we're all increasingly familiar with this idea that global temperatures are increasing above what they were pre-industrially and we have to limit that increase to less than two degrees above pre-industrial levels. So it's a very simple idea, it's a very simple number, two degrees, let's keep it below two degrees and that has allowed the public and, and the media to communicate to the public a tractable idea and fact which allows us to understand what is going on. Um, but biodiversity loss is, is more difficult to get your head around. You know, not everybody notices biodiversity loss firsthand. I have to say because I work in this area, I do. So I remember mm -hmm. when I was a child, there were tiger garden caterpillars, which are, are these hairy caterpillars, which we called uh, locally granny grey bears. And there used to be <laughs> armies of these things every summer. And I haven't seen one now for 20 years, nor have yeah. I heard a cuckoo since my youth. But my parents talk about 
corn crakes. But of course, I'd never heard of corn crake. They were already gone by the time I was a child. And this is something called shifting baselines, where each generation fails to notice the vanishing of what was there the generation before. So it's very difficult unless you're really looking hard to notice these things disappearing. And we're also busy, people aren't really paying attention. But you're absolutely right that the numbers around this are utterly staggering. As I say, 60% um, of the world's animal populations lost within a single generation. In Central and South America, where I work, um, it's 89%, and that's the average for all countries in Central and South America. So if it's an average, you can easily imagine that there's many areas that have been reduced to virtually zero. You know, their habitats have been utterly raised to the ground. Um, and we, and as I said, it's, it's back to that idea of this game of Jenga. We're taking out species by species by species from the bottom of this tower of blocks, and it's getting more and more wobbly. Uh, and we know in places, for example, uh, in some places in China where there's been fairly unregulated use of um, um, insecticides, they have lost virtually all their local bee populations. And many of the local people there have orchards and apples require pollination by bees. And there are now no longer in some regions bees to do that job. So, there, so there's a very poor apple crop. And so as a result, people have to climb ladders with paintbrushes to individually pan pollinate these flowers so Whoa. that they set fruit. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of length yes. to which we go yes. when, when these um, processes become disrupted in order to produce our food. So, yeah. you know, I think it's absolutely a, a global emergency that needs to be dealt with and we need to get some kind of handle on it in the way that we have done with climate change and, and make it much more of a public issue of understanding. Mm. And you mentioned the wildlife trade and, and you mentioned pangolins, you know, being one of the most trafficked animals on Earth. Um, I mean, there is a campaign calling for a worldwide ban on the wildlife trade, as, as you will be very aware. Um, I'm presuming you would support that. Well, um, again, it's a very thorny issue. Um, mm. So, you know, a lot of illegal activity around the world involves uh, narcotic drugs, uh, uh, the selling of arms, uh, human trafficking. But in fact, um, wildlife trade is up there in the top five most illegal activities in terms of its, its economic turnover. Um, wildlife trafficking is worth up to 23 billion pounds a year. Um, so this is an enormous industry. It's not just involving pangolins, but you know, huge numbers of individual animals and species and animal products being illegally transported around the world without regulation. And that's a real risk when you think about um, particularly um, animal products spreading, potentially spreading diseases. Um, so it's not only a risk, and, and we can see that when it, it does happen, such as COVID-19, it can have truly um, global impacts. It's, it's impacting all of us. I'm sitting here on my bed talking to you today because I can't go to work. And this is because a disease leaked into human beings on the other side of the world. So, you know, this is a huge issue that we have to be very careful with. The problem, of course, is that um, particularly in the consumption of animals, it, it revolves around cultural norms. You know, we think it's very odd in, in Western cultures to to eat some animals that would be eaten commonly in Southeast Asia, but uh, you know that's just a cultural difference, a cultural norm. Uh, and so changing people's behaviours, nudging them away from 
not eating things that they used to eat to other things that they, they, they maybe don't want to eat is very difficult, particularly uh, in an older generation. Uh, and so it can work, you, you can regulate it in two ways. The first is kind of bottom up through education, trying to re-educate people so that they, they, they stop doing things that are potentially uh, unhealthy or dangerous. And so you can think about, um, um, you know, education over smoking. Uh, it used to be very common that people would smoke and not think about it a few decades ago. And now we all know that it's something we shouldn't do. And socially it has become unacceptable. You know, you can't smoke in a, in a, indoors. It's become unacceptable. Uh, and so that's one way of changing people's behaviours. And the other way is kind of top down government regulation and an outright ban. So either individual countries ban wildlife trades or um, the international community through places like the United Nations ban international trade of animals. I mean, I think it's probably both that has to happen. I think banning it from a governmental point of view sends a very strong message. So it's like wearing seatbelts, you know, it became law uh, that we all had to do it. And that changed our individual behaviours. Um, so I think it has to be a two way street between some bottom up process and some top down process. But I personally, you know, it's personal opinion as opposed to professional opinion. I personally don't see why we need to consume and, and eat and use the animal products of the, the wide range of animals that we do, particularly when there's no evidence that they do some of the things that it's claimed they do. Um, so particularly in, in, in traditional medicines, you know, pangolin scales are keratin. They are the same as your fingernails or, or, or mine. Uh, I think there's very little evidence to suggest that they have any medicinal um, um, benefits. Uh, well, we're talking, you know, policy there and how policy can, you know, um, dovetail with education and, and all of that. But in this part of the world, we have another big policy issue on the table, which is obviously Brexit. And there's been a lot of talk about declining food standards and environmental standards if the UK signs up to certain trade deals. I mean, how concerned are you that the relatively high standards the UK has had as an EU member might now be undermined, especially in the rush to stimulate economies after the pandemic? Well, as we've been discussing, these issues are truly global, whether it's climate change, biodiversity loss, the management of the pandemic. It utterly requires nation states to collaborate uh, and I think the premise, I don't think it can, can be argued against, that the premise of Brexit is the opposite. It's, it's to create competition and to drive changes through competition rather than collaboration. And so I personally think anything that makes it harder for us to work together, whether it be in the EU or across the globe, it is a bad thing, particularly at this moment in history where we, we really need to be working together in a much more unified um, fashion. And so if one particular nation chooses to go down one particular route because it is economically favourable, um, then other nations lose out because they can't be as competitive. So it's this kind of rush to the bottom when it's competition, whereas when we're collaborating together, we're maintaining a similar standard, we can all rise up together and rise each other up together. And I think in terms of the really difficult decisions, you know, we've, we've seen the hardships that pa this pandemic has caused. Um, firstly, in terms of the change in, in the way that we travel, you know, we've all stopped flying principally, we, we've all stopped driving to work. Now that has caused huge economic um, disruption, it has meant that a lot of people have lost their jobs or have been furloughed. 
Um, and the idea that we would then continue doing that into the future because it is beneficial, not for the control of the pandemic, but for the control of climate change is a difficult concept for economies to accept. But we really have to get to the point where we are investing money to change um, our economies away from fossil fuel based economies to green sustainable economies. And so that means not giving um, um, highly polluting industry subsidies, but instead um, um, investing those in green technologies and green industries and green jobs and retraining people for those green jobs. You know, we're not talking about people put, putting people out of their, their um, employment, but rather giving them new opportunities. And so we have to shift uh, our economy away to a sustainable economy through a just transition that supports people and the economy um, without causing um, additional damage. But that does mean de uh, kind of de um, going into what's known as degrowth. So, so um, you know, gr uh, scaling back some industries for the benefits of others. And those yeah. are hard decisions economically and politically to make. So I, I get that it's a difficult decision, but you know, we're, 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 we're really at the point where we're jumping out of the coronavirus pan into the climate change fire uh, and something has to change. Yes, and, and you wrote recently about how lockdown itself was having an effect on wildlife, but this time, you know, for the better. Um, and, you know, you, you were talking about things you've mentioned there, like the slowing down of pollution and other sort of man-made behaviours that were, were, you know, changing the way the natural world was functioning, albeit for a very short amount of time. Uh, for example, the birds in urban areas weren't, weren't having to use up all their vital energy singing loudly enough to be heard over the traffic. Um, and I guess probably the most famous example is how China's air pollution plummeted under lockdown only to quickly revert to pre-pandemic levels. So I guess what I'm wondering at this stage in the conversation is how important is it you know, or how do we go about making sure that an environmental agenda be incorporated into the recovery from COVID? Well, I think it's absolutely essential to take advantage of the, the benefit, some of the benefits that lockdown has brought. You know, it has demonstrated to us that we can utterly change how to society and individuals behave in very radical ways when it is to our benefit and protects our families uh, and our neighbourhoods. But of course, you know, climate change is, is altering our country and our neighbourhoods as well. And so we have to think about how we bring in the benefits, you know, continued working from home, for example, cutting out on necessary land travel, reducing our flights, um, reducing the, the transport uh, chain uh, lengths for, for transporting food, for example. So I think, you know, government really needs to start building those kind of features into the long-term economic strategy so that it's investing in, in processes that will support those kinds of uh, benefits without penalising the economy. Um, now, I, I totally appreciate that that is a difficult thing to do, um, particularly given an awful lot of large institutions, governments and, and whatnot are very slow to react. You know, you know our processes are very uh, glacial, um, but we have seen that when, when it is required, we can move quite quickly and economic stimuli can be brought forth very, very quickly as well. Mm. It, it just seems that at these sort of times of seismic geopolitics, you know, that we're talking about the global pandemics and things like Brexit and international trade deals, 
individuals can feel quite helpless. I mean, it's all very well us talking about what's required from governments, but it, it can feel difficult, especially when a lot of those governments of the most maybe powerful nations may not seem to be that sympathetic. So, are, I mean, are there things that individuals can do? You know, do, do all those things like, um, you know, the wildflower bits of grass in your garden and, and the bug hotels or whatever, do they actually help or do they just make middle class sort of educated people feel better about themselves? Um, well, certainly there's a lot of the latter going on. <laughs> um, you know, I, I live in a, a middle class suburban neighbourhood and I have ripped up my lawn and I have replaced it with scruffy wildflowers. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, my neighbours probably tut at how untidy <laughs> it is. But yet, you know, yesterday I was watching the butterflies. Um, yeah. So, you know, there, there are small things that on an individual basis probably doesn't make a huge difference. But if we all were adopting that, if all gardens had a wildflower patch, well, that, that would start to add up. So it's this kind of trade off between individuals doing it versus lots of individuals doing it. Uh, and so some of the things that we can do generally for the environment uh, as individuals, um, one of the most important things that you can do in terms of tackling climate change is insulating your house. Mm. Huge numbers of homes across the UK are extremely poorly insulated, meaning that we're burning fossil fuels to heat the air, which then escapes out through the walls and out through the windows and the cracks under the doors. So making sure your roofs, your walls, your ceilings, your floors uh, are all insulated, making sure you don't have drafts, making sure you have double glazing. That's really important for your for your own personal carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. um, stopping air travel. That's very controversial. I have to say I've got to the point now I used to travel an awful lot and particularly as an academic we you know academics fly a lot. Yes um, they do. We've, we've now seen recently that we don't have to. I can deliver a lecture on the other side of the world from home um, mm -hmm. and so a certain amount of it I think was about going on a jolly and I think now I, I'm going to think very seriously before boarding a plane again for any purpose because you know it's a it's that issue of of being societally acceptable and the guilt that it brings. I no longer feel that it is acceptable for me to get on a transatlantic flight. Um, you know, how selfish to emit huge amounts of carbon dioxide in order to go to the US. I mean, there's no point in me having energy saving light bulbs if I then hop on a plane once a year to go to the US. Um, so, so reducing and stopping travel where it's not necessary, continuing to work from home so you're reducing car travel, not consuming as much. So, you know, um, people changing their cars every few years. 12 year old cars are much more polluting than new cars and certainly electric cars. But at the same time, creating the conditions for the demand for, for manufacturing a whole new car is a very energy efficient, energy hungry process. So we have to be very careful about exhausting what we currently have, our clothes, um, our fittings in our homes, our vehicles, so that we're not just constantly consuming the whole time. Also in lockdown, you know, I, I've actually start, start, stopped spending as much money because I don't go to the shop. I have some of my shopping delivered. So I'm no longer wandering around and then spot something and go, oh, I'd like that. I'm buying something that I no don't actually need. I don't need a new pair of jeans or a new pair of trainers every so often as, as I would have done. So I can really reduce the amount of consumption and waste in my life. Um, there's a lot of controversy over the idea of eating less meat. Um, um, I'm not advocating necessarily going completely vegan, but certainly reducing the amount of meat that we eat. Uh, and this is because 
huge numbers of people in the world are currently transitioning in, in less developed countries from lower economic classes into middle classes. And as you transition to middle class, you begin consuming more meat. And unfortunately, nine billion people cannot eat meat twice a day, every day. It's just not possible under the current farming systems. So we have to reduce the amount of meat that we're eating and um, so that we're eating less because livestock farming does emit a large amount of carbon into the atmosphere. So that's another issue. Buying locally, reducing the amount of air food miles um, will be another great way of reducing your carbon footprint. And then reducing the amount of waste because I'm getting my shopping delivered on the lockdown and it's coming less frequently than I would have popped out to the shop. I'm much more aware of, of sell by dates and making sure that I'm eating things in the right order so that things don't go out of date. Uh, I'm much more, um, also because I've got more time on my hands, I'm much more keen on using leftovers and making meals out of leftovers that I wouldn't have necessarily done before. Uh, uh, so, uh, and buying, when we do get back out again, buying food, less food, but more often so that it doesn't rot in the back of our fridge. So reducing mm. waste, reducing consumption, reducing traveling, all of the things that we've been doing, we can continue doing an awful lot of that. Now, of course, we're going to return to some degree of normality, but wouldn't it be nice if we could keep the good bits and, and really reduce our environmental footprints overall? Mm. Yes, I think a lot of people have been changing, you know, their cooking, their eating habits, their consumption habits, as you say. We've all probably saved a bit of money and uh, not doing that daily commute to work. And as you say, shopping more sort of strategically, planning your meals a bit more. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I get what you're saying that as well as being sort of globally and, and sort of from a policy point of view, a tipping point for the environment, it, it also could be one for, for all of our systems, our food systems and our relationship with the natural world. Um, and I suppose to look at it more positively, perhaps, because I, I think there's been a fair amount of doom and gloom in this conversation, but I, I, I hear that you're also saying there's an opportunity in there as well as a crisis, you know, an opportunity to reclaim wildlife and biodiversity in the wake of, of COVID-19. I think that that's absolutely right. That there is an opportunity there. I think that we have to be very cautious at this moment because it's very easy to aspire to greatness after, we're, after these events. But there, there are signs that in order to stimulate the economy back into growth, that we may return to a kind of business worse than usual, um, where we reduce our standards and we cut corners and we give stimuli to, to, to um, industries that perhaps we shouldn't be. So we have to be very cautious about going forward and making sure that that opportunity is realised. Neil, thanks very much for all your insights and expertise that you've shared with us today. Uh, and that just about wraps up this episode of the COVID-19 and Food podcast from the Institute for Global Food Security. You can listen to this one again and all the podcasts from the series on our website. That's www.qub.ac.uk forward slash IGFS. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter too, at QUBIGFS. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.